Welcome to a class on the former prophets. I'll explain what exactly you mean by former prophets in a moment. Um, easily confused with minor prophets, but not minor prophets. Um, so I will be teaching this. It will be only six weeks. We've got a lot of ground to cover in six weeks. And uh, I'll teach the first five weeks. And then Nate Weidman will help us out and teach the last week on First and Second Kings. So he's doing that because we had initially planned to have this class in the fall. And I was going to be in Israel during that time. And so Nate was going to take it, and it started prepping. And um, I'm happy to have him helping me teach this anyway. So he'll be helping with that latter part. All right. Well, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we do thank you just for the body, for the way that you are saving people, gathering them together to yourself, even the opportunity to gather back together as the body this evening. Um, Worship your name together in song, and then gather together to consider your revelation that we might better understand it because it's so critical for our discipleship, uh, for following after Christ. And so I pray that our time over this, this six weeks would be beneficial, would make us better readers of your word, that we would better understand salvation history and what you're doing in it. Um, and I pray you'd help me to be clear with that and help, help these people as they hear it to be able to take that and assimilate it into their own Bible reading in a way that would be beneficial. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so you've got a handout there that um, varies between just having the outline to help you track where I'm going um, with spaces in there for you to make some notes if you want, and I'll keep each week giving you some more of that. Uh, And then sometimes I have actually printed in there, you know, a paragraph or so. If there's something that I think you probably do want to write down and is pretty critical. Of those who just came in, does anyone need a handout? You guys all are fine? Okay. Looks like they're fine, Nate. All right. So let's first jump in with a little bit of orientation. Actually, despite having not much time for this week, we aren't even going to get into Joshua. I just felt like it was so critical to set things up. So we're going to try to cover three things today tonight. For one thing, we're going to, and by the way, I don't have a full PowerPoint. So uh, if you think I'm falling behind, I just don't have anything to go to. This is all you're going to see all night. (laughs) Um, So three things. Number one, just a general orientation to the class. You know what to expect. Number two, we're going to go back and do a really quick overview of high points from the Pentateuch, from Genesis through Deuteronomy, that are points that are critical to be able to be a good reader of Joshua through Deuteronomy, I mean Joshua through 2 Kings. And then finally, we're going to do just a little bit of a consideration about how to read biblical narrative, because what we're going to be spending all our time in here is biblical narrative. And so just a brief review of that. So that's what we'll cover today. So just jumping right in here to the first part, the orientation to the class. First, what are the former prophets? This is a term, a category we don't often use. Well, first, it's helpful to understand just an overview of the structure of the Hebrew Bible, by which we just mean really the Bible as it's been used by Jews and passed on. Um, Really, this version of it goes back to right around the turn of the century, the turn of the era, time of Christ, Um, maybe a little bit before that. Uh, But the structure from that time has basically been divided into three sections. There was the Torah, which just means instruction. Sometimes it's translated law. Instruction certainly better, um, or what we often call in Christian tradition, Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The second section is called the Nevi'im, or the prophets. And that's a larger section I'll come back to in a moment. That's the section we're in, we're in the first part of that, the former prophets. And then there's the Ketuvim, which just means writing. So that's the three pieces of the Hebrew Bible. And when you put those together, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, think of the T, the N, and the K, in Jewish tradition, they call the whole Old Testament the Tanakh, just by basically putting those together and putting vowels between them so you can pronounce them. So that's the structure of the Hebrew Bible. And then the prophets, that middle section, is divided into two parts, the former prophets and, you guessed it, the latter prophets. And so the former prophets consist of what we would typically consider historical books. Uh, Joshua judges First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And then the latter prophets is more of what we would traditionally consider prophets. So the three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets. And then the last part, the writings, is kind of a catch-all category. Um, There we find books we would typically think of as wisdom books, like Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Job, 
It's also where Daniel is included. Um, it's where other historical books are included, like Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, First and Second Chronicles. So a variety of other books um, included in the writings. Now, I've kind of set this all up. About, here's the structure of the Hebrew Bible. I'm explaining that so you understand what we mean by the category of former prophets. But I don't think there's anything particularly special about the ordering of the books in the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew canon, as though it locks some, unlocks some kind of special insights. I just thought this grouping of six books that come next, Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, is a really helpful grouping of books to pick up next after the Pentateuch. Um, I, I don't think that reading the Bible in that particular way is just some kind of special way of reading it. It, it doesn't necessarily yield anything different, but it was a helpful group. So looking a little bit more carefully at the former prophets, think of that. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, six books. What's the only one in that section that's missing that you would expect to be in the middle of that? Ruth. Ruth. So in, the, in our Bible, Ruth goes there because Ruth happens during the period of the judges. So early in the Christian tradition, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was used, they called it a Septuagint, they inserted Ruth there right after judges. Uh, within the Jewish canon, the Hebrew Bible, they don't put that in the form of prophets. Ruth is kept for the writings at the end. So that's why it's not in there. But otherwise, it's a familiar sequence of books, isn't it? Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And it's really helpful in that it picks up right where Deuteronomy leaves off, begins with entrance into the promised land, and then continues almost through to the end of Old Testament history. That, that period, not quite, but almost to the end, all the way through into the exile from the promised land. So we're looking at roughly 1400 BC through sometime in the 500s, latter part of the 500s, or middle of 500s BC. So almost a thousand years covered there. And the former prophets, together with the Torah, the Pentateuch, basically form what we could call like the storyline backbone of the Old Testament. So if you think of like a narrative, the story from beginning to end, from creation all the way through to exile, we get that main storyline in the Torah and the former prophets. That's why they make up the first half of the Hebrew Bible. And then you can, in some ways, think of it as everything else after the former prophets, the latter prophets and the writings, as in some sense being commentary on that storyline. You get the basic storyline first, and then other things are kind of commentary on that. So hopefully that's helpful in explaining what we mean by the category of former prophets and helping you to kind of orient yourself to how that fits into the Bible. Now, my objectives for this class. I've got two listed there. Number one, that you will understand the storyline of Scripture from the crossing of the Jordan to the exile to Babylon, and not just that you'll understand that part of the storyline, but that you will understand that part of the storyline in light of kind of what we might call the first chapter of the story, which is that covered in the Pentateuch, from creation up through Deuteronomy. So you'll understand that portion of the storyline. Secondly, that you'll understand several things about each of these books. Number one, that you'll understand the situation in which each book was written. Number two, that you'll understand the purpose for each book. Number three, that you'll understand the structure of each book. And then four, that you'll understand the role of each part in that structure of each book in accomplishing the book's purpose. And so although this will be a very high-level survey, trying to cover six books across six weeks, uh, this survey should help you to be a better reader of these books in the future. We obviously can't cover all the details, but give you some orientation so that as you read these books in the future, you're able to do it with just greater clarity and greater insight, better understanding what the author meant by, those, by these books. Now, that's the objectives for this class. Now, what's my method? How are we going to go about this? Um, purpose and structure. Authors have purposes in writing their books, and authors deliberately structure their books so as to accomplish their purpose. And each part of that book, each piece in the structure, has a role to play in accomplishing the purpose, right? So we're going to kind of consider those pieces, consider um, the, the purpose of the book, the structure of the book. We're also going to consider the situation of the book. So books aren't just written generically to be classics. Uh, books are usually written by authors in a particular situation to address a particular need. 
And so it's helpful often to understand what those are insofar as we can discern it. When it comes to the Old Testament, we can't always discern what that situation was. I think it's maybe a little bit easier to discern, say, for Joshua, judges a little bit harder. So we can't always discern that situation. That situation was much easier for us to discern in the Pentateuch. Not so easy for most of the books of uh, the former prophets. But insofar as we can understand the situation, it's helpful to understand what the author's purpose might have been. So as we work through, we'll consider the situation for each book. And we're only going to do that briefly. Many books that do a survey or an introduction to the Old Testament or classes will often spend a long time on what they call isagogics, like authorship, who wrote it, um, what was the date of writing, uh, and all kinds of other technical details, interacting with liberals. And while there's a place for that, and it is interesting, uh, we have limited time. So I'm going to spend most of our time just looking at the actual contents of the book and at a high level. But I do want to briefly orient us to the situation where we can discern it. Um, And then secondly, I'll give you the purpose of the book. Thirdly, I'll give you the the structure of the book, and then we'll work through that structure, each piece, and see how that piece of the structure contributes to the whole. So that'll be our purpose. Now, what I will avoid, there's often all kinds of minute details that we often have questions about. Jephthah. What did Jephthah actually do to his daughter? What happened to his daughter? Was she really killed? Was she not really killed? Well, these are often interesting questions and often not totally irrelevant But sometimes we can spend a ton of time on that and miss the big picture. So where there are things like that that could quickly get us distracted um, from continuing on, I'm going to intentionally skip over those things. So if you're thinking, why did we not touch on this? Like when we went through Genesis, I don't think I ever gave you guys a a position on Genesis 6 um, and the angels of God and the daughters of men because that could easily get us distracted, right? I didn't think it was that critical at the high level we were cruising um, through the book. So I'm going to intentionally intentionally avoid some of those Um, isolated interpretive questions. Also, and finally for our orientation to the class, I enjoy dialogue. And so feel free to raise your hand and ask questions. If I see your hand and look at you and then continue talking, it's probably because I'm just waiting until I get to a a good stopping point. Um, So don't be offended. I'll come back to you. Um, And then I I want questions. I want to engage with you. And uh, we also have limited time. And so... Keep your questions direct, and then don't use a question, the guise of a question, to launch into an extended monologue. Um, And then I'll also try to be direct with you. If there is a time where we'll address this later, um, then I'll just let you know. We'll come back to that later. It'll be better to answer it later once we've covered some more ground. All right. So continuing on, I don't know what page this puts you on, but it should be Roman numeral number two. Probably page three, maybe. What comes before? A review of Genesis through Deuteronomy. So this is where we'll spend most of our time tonight. Now, this is a class focused on Joshua through 2 Kings. Well, how would we go back and spend time looking at Genesis uh, through Deuteronomy? Simply stated, you can't rightly understand the former prophets without understanding the Pentateuch. Or at least being familiar with it. The former prophets are a continuation of the same you could call it meta-narrative, storyline. I'm using those terms interchangeably. Just the basic same trajectory of a story that continues from creation all the way through to new, to new creation. So the former prophets are just a continuation coming right after the Pentateuch. It picks up right there and continues on. And the authors of the former prophets everywhere assume the reader's knowledge of the Pentateuch. I don't think that's an overstatement. They again and again assume your knowledge. In fact, part of their ways of communicating is not to connect dots for you, but is to narrate something in such a way that when it's read through the lens of the Pentateuch, you clearly see the conclusion you're supposed to go to. If you don't have that lens, though, you're not going to draw the conclusion. So when, I'm just going to give you a quick snapshot here of how this works out. When you're reading in 1 Kings and the narrative's just telling you facts about Solomon, it's telling you how many wives he has, telling you how much gold and silver he has, telling you how many chariots he has. Well, that's interesting facts. But when you read that through the lens of Deuteronomy 17, which says the righteous king shall not multiply wives for himself. The righteous king shall not multiply gold and silver for himself. And the righteous king shall not have a standing army. 
There's a clear conclusion to be drawn, isn't there? Solomon's already going off track. But the author leaves you to know the Pentateuch and make that, that inference, draw that conclusion. He certainly wants you to, and you won't understand what he's getting at in that chapter unless you can read it through that lens. So it's very important that we quickly, and at a very high level, just kind of review these points from the Pentateuch so that we understand the former prophets correctly. All right, let's jump into that then. If it's a lot to cover six books in six weeks, we're going to cover five books in 30 minutes. Ready? First Genesis 1 and 2, God's purpose in creation. We've got to understand what was God's purpose in creation. And we need to understand that because everything else in the Bible is about how and why things have gotten off track and how God is working to restore and complete what he began. Everything kind of is centered around God's purpose in creation, how it got off track from that and what he's moving it back toward. Therefore, it's important for us to understand God's purpose in creation. So I gave you there, I think I gave you right there, um, printed out for you, a summary of God's purpose in creation. God's purpose in creation was to fill creation with his images or image bearers, if you prefer. With his image bearers who will live in his relational presence and rule over creation on his behalf. His images, fill creation with his images who will live in his relational presence and rule over creation on his behalf. So now let's look at this in the text. I'm just going to frame this up around three pieces. Um, first of all, humans as divine images or as image bearers. So quickly look at Genesis 1.26 in your Bible. We won't be spending too much time reading text here just because we have to move so quickly. And this is a familiar passage, but I want to at least read it for you. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So notice in verse 26, there are two parts. First, we see at the beginning that God creates man, humanity as image and according to his likeness. God said, this is deliberation, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then the second part, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and so forth. And the, the sequence of verbs here in the Hebrew is such that, that that second sentence, let them rule over, indicates purpose, indicates the purpose of the first. Let us make man in order that, let us make man in our image according to our likeness in order that they may rule over the fish of the sea and so forth. So it's important to understand that there's a direct connection there between being made in the image and likeness of God and having this responsibility to rule over creation. The idea here is that humans have a unique relationship to God and a corresponding responsibility to creation. So these terms convey sonship and representation, both the relationship between humans and God, like sonship, and the relationship between humans and the rest of creation, representation. So humans are created in a special relationship to God, and because of that, they have a special responsibility. Uh, they have a special role in creation, that is, to represent God. And that responsibility to represent God, we could even be more specific about that. It's a representation that primarily manifests itself in vice regency, that is, ruling over the earth on God's behalf. So God is the ultimate king. We can think of many texts, many psalms, particularly in the 90s, that emphasize that again and again. God is king. He rules over creation. But because humans are his images, meaning they represent him, they also represent his kingship. That is, they function as vice regents ruling the earth on his behalf. So first, thing to understand in terms of seeing this purpose of God in creation, namely that it is filling creation with his images who will live in his relational presence and rule over creation on his behalf is to understand what it means for humans to be made in the image of God. And that is that they, they have a special relationship to him and that they represent him through ruling over creation on his behalf. Secondly, 
just kind of some high points in seeing this purpose of God in creation, we need to understand that humans were made to live in God's relational presence. And I'm kind of synthesizing this from a number of portions of Genesis 1 and 2, but maybe the the section that would most clearly um, teach this would be chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. Humans were made to live in God's relational presence. So to help you see this, I want to first look at the tree of life and then the rivers. So the tree of life, it's important to understand the role of the tree of life in conveying that God purposed in creation for humans to live in his relational presence. So the tree of life would not have been new to Moses' audience. Uh, Ancient Near Eastern literature has many references to these trees that convey life, sacred trees that convey life in some sense. That was a common theme. And the tree of life marks the garden as a place characterized by the divine presence, by God's presence, and by the fullness of life found in divine presence. Now, when I say fullness of life, I don't mean simply physical life. Um, life. There's far more to life than that. There's spiritual life. There's all kinds of aspects. There's a flourishing to full life, um, but the, the fullness of life that's found in the divine presence. That includes both the blessings of the divine presence itself and all the blessings that attend that divine presence. And as I said, this is not purely physical life, but fullness of life in all its dimensions made possible by the presence of God. And that life that characterized the garden was, get this, that was a reality Adam enjoyed, not merely some kind of unrealized potential life. It was a reality that Adam was enjoying in the garden. So the tree of life identifies the garden as a place characterized by the fullness of life that comes from God's relational presence. Humans were made to live in his relational presence. And then the rivers in verses 10 through 14 of chapter 2 indicate that the Garden of Eden was the source of blessing, of fertility to the whole earth. So there's some kind of unique blessing in the garden that is then emanating out to the rest of creation. And that leads us to um, the third thing I want us to see, to see God's purpose in creation. I label that as just extension. Extension. God purposed For this situation in the garden not to be limited and remain only something realized in a localized part of creation of the earth, but to encompass the entirety of the earth. He wanted this situation of God's relational presence, the enjoyment of God's relational presence, and all the blessings that attend that to be realized, to be experienced throughout the entirety of the earth. Think about this. Man is placed in the garden to cultivate and keep it. And yet, he's also to multiply, to fill the whole earth, to exercise dominion over the whole earth. So think about that. On the one hand, you're told, here's this garden. You've got to keep this garden. Your responsibility is to cultivate and keep it. And yet, you've got to fill the whole earth. How do you do that? Well, it seems like the purpose is that as you're working the garden, you're actually extending the boundaries of the garden such that it begins to encompass the whole earth. And the point of extending the garden isn't primarily a concern about how far, where the boundary of the garden extends in the sense of how many plants you have, but the idea that the glory of God experienced and realized uniquely in his relational presence in the garden becomes a reality that's not localized, but is experienced throughout all all of the earth. We notice that the garden was not all it should be. Work was needed to make it become something more. Think ahead to Revelation, the end of Revelation, chapters 20 and 22, where we see that the new Jerusalem, this global city that seems to fill the earth, the new earth, shows us what what the garden was to become. All of the correspondences between the garden and and the new Jerusalem, in terms of imagery, help us to make those connections and see what it was to become. So there's work to be done in terms of this garden filling the whole earth. Two, two passages in the prophets that I think kind of corroborate this. Habakkuk 2.14. He looks forward to a time when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord... As the waters cover the sea. Think about that. How do waters cover the sea? Like it's synonymous, isn't it? Water's everywhere the sea is. 
And so the purpose is that the glory of the knowledge of the Lord would similarly be everywhere in the earth. And then Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So just kind of three aspects of seeing God's purpose in creation. Those three aspects, we're just looking at the tree of, the, uh, tree of life. The idea of the rivers extending the blessings of the garden to creation. And then just the idea that mankind was responsible for extending that blessing to the whole earth. So by way of review, God's purpose in creation was to fill creation with his images, who will live in his relational presence and rule over creation on his behalf. However, the first human's failure to trust the Lord brought ruin upon creation and threatened God's purpose. So that's the next really critical thing we see in this storyline. What was the found what was the fundamental thing that derailed this purpose? Adam and Eve's refusal to trust the Lord in determining what is good and right. So we see this in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. First of all, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the tree of knowledge, I'll just shorten it to that, is here in the midst of the garden. And it seems to, it's a literal tree, but it also has significance. And it seems to represent Adam's insistence to know for himself. Adam's insistence to know for himself. Those of you who were in the Genesis class might remember I introduced you to a term you probably remember from philosophy 101, epistemology. Basically, how do we know something? How do we verify that something we might know is true? And I use the adjective from that epistemic, epistemic autonomy. That just means like being autonomous in determining what's true. In other words, I want to do that all on my own. I don't want anyone else to tell me what's right and true and good. I want to decide that on my own. That would be epistemic autonomy. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil seems to represent that. To, to partake of the tree of knowledge is to grab after, to lunge for epistemic autonomy. Whereas humanity ought to trust God, who knows all and is able to distinguish between good and evil, eating of the tree of knowledge represents a refusal to trust God so that humanity is autonomous rather than trustingly dependent. And now notice there's two trees, right? We've already seen the tree of life, now the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the dynamic here of these two trees is that the tree of life points to a reality. Man enjoyed life in all of its fullness in the garden due to the divine relational presence being there. So that was a reality. The tree of life points to a reality that's enjoyed in the garden. The tree of knowledge points to a possibility, a condition. The maintenance of the divine relational presence and all the blessings that attend that divine relational presence requires faith that man trustingly submit to God, taking him at his word, and not insisting on verifying everything for himself. To use our epistemology word, epistemic dependency rather than epistemic autonomy. Basically meaning God's revealed what's good and true, and that's enough for me. I'm going to embrace that and not trust my own reasoning, what seems good and right to myself, but I'm going to yield that right to God in faith. This arrangement that God has perfectly designed requires that man, man maintain this posture. In the presence of the tree of knowledge is a reminder of this in a means of exposing that fundamental destroyer of God's relational presence, which is lusting after, reaching for epistemic autonomy, which must necessarily destroy the relationship with God and result in expulsion from the divine presence and expulsion from the fullness of life that attends the divine presence, represented by removal from the tree of life. You guys see that? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Creation and Fall, helpfully illustrates this, describes this in, in a, a vivid way. And this isn't a quote, this is just my attempt to kind of summarize the way he says this. He says it this way. Well, I summarize what he says this way. God is at the center of the garden, and man finds his good and his meaning 
in relation to that center. But if man decides he is not content to merely be near the center, finding his meaning and good in relation to God, and in that way being secondary and subservient, but that he himself wants to be the center, in grasping for that, attempting to make himself the center, he loses it all. He loses it all because he can't be the center. Whereas he previously flourished in relation to the center, having meaning and enjoying life, by trying to make himself the center, he loses meaning and life because he himself can produce neither. So the, there's this fullness of life in the divine relational presence. Living in the relational presence of God and the tree of knowledge is there to say, that's, there's a condition to this. Only when you yield to the Lord in submissive faith can you actually enjoy that. And the tree of, life basically, the tree of knowledge basically is there to kind of uh, you know, be the buzzer. Okay, things have gone off track, right? Now, now they, they are lusting after it. They're beginning to go for that. It flushes it out. It reveals it. So, a quick takeaway, though. When we look around and see the brokenness of the world and realize the world's not the way it should be, we must not miss the deeper underlying thing that's not the way it should be. And that is man's lust for independence and autonomy, his refusal to remain in submission to God, and his rebellion to his creator. The other things that are not the way they should be in creation are all, you might call them collateral damage. They're all downstream. They're all results of man's refusal to remain trustingly dependent on God. We're not going to go here now, but that has huge implications for thinking about how God is going about fixing those issues. It's no wonder that as soon as you jettison that idea that the most fundamental problem is that man is at enmity with God and that everything that follows in terms of disease, famine, anything else flows out of that, that you begin to put all of your focus, your ultimate focus on fixing those secondary things. But when you understand the fundamental thing, the linchpin to it all is man's relationship to God and trusting him, then that has to be at the core of any real solution. And that's exactly how God's working, right? To first reconcile man to himself, but it doesn't stop there. And that's important for us to remember. He purposes to still reconcile all things to himself. All of creation remade and restored as it was supposed to be. But that forgiveness, that reconciliation to himself is the critical linchpin through which that process has to come about. All right, so that's the kind of the, the situation. Seeing, seeing that um, the first human's failure to trust the Lord brought ruin upon creation and threatened God's purpose. Uh, First, we see it in the, tro- the, the tree of the knowledge. Then, what was Adam and Eve's response to that tree? How'd that actually pan out? We know they went for it, didn't they? They were not content because they believed the lie that they actually shouldn't trust the Lord, that they couldn't trust the Lord, and that they ought to try to determine right for themselves. They believed that, which meant not believing the Lord. And the result of Adam and Eve's sin directly opposed God's creation purposes. Think about these parallels. God purposed for humans to rule over creation on his behalf. They stopped ruling over creation on his behalf, and they actually turned on him. They rebelled against him. I love the imagery here of a mutiny. They kind of left them to rule, and they said, no, 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 we're actually going to take, take over this for ourselves and use it all for ourselves. Number two, God purposed for humans to flourish in his relational presence, but... Because of their sin, humanity's access to the divine relational presence and all the blessings that attend it was removed. Can you see how all these things are undermining, undoing all of the kind of elements of God's purpose in creation? Number three, God purposed for humans to fill the earth with image bearers, but the punishment on Eve entailing difficulty in conception and difficulty in childbearing directly opposed that purpose to fill creation with his image bearers. 
Number four, God purposed for humans to cultivate and keep the garden as they extend its boundaries until it encompasses the whole earth. But the curse on the ground makes that work significantly more difficult. And I mentioned also earlier that they're supposed to be extending the boundaries of the garden by working and keeping it, but they're actually expelled from the garden, right? They aren't even there to begin working it. Thus, humanity's sin and its consequences directly opposed God's purpose in creation. So, by way of review, what was the fundamental thing that derailed this purpose? Adam and Eve's refusal to trust the Lord in determining what is right and good. All right, moving on now to Genesis 3 and following. I think it's listed there as D for you guys. How God has purposed to restore and complete what he began. And everything else we're going to look at uh, is going to fall under that here. Yep. Well, it's basically 10 points here of summarizing the redemptive part of the storyline up through Deuteronomy. So first of all, in Genesis 3.15, I know there's a lot that could be said about this passage. Um, I said a lot before. In fact, let me say kind of in passing here that if you're hearing this and thinking, wow, there's a lot here. I really wish this was unpacked a bit more. Um, The recordings of the teaching on the survey of the Pentateuch are available on the website. Um, I did check that. The only thing was we missed the very first one. So I actually have some printouts of my notes from that first one. If you want to get that, you're welcome to come up here afterwards. I can give you that printout. Um, So that, together with listening to the recordings for the last four, would give you kind of that overall survey of the Pentateuch if you want a little bit more. I'm thinking of that because there's a lot that could be said about Genesis 3.15. I'm not going to be able to say much about it. In Genesis 3.15, God provides a vague but hope-providing indication of his purpose to fix this predicament and to bring his purpose for creation to completion. Let me just real briefly, let's take a quick look at it. I can't even begin explaining it unless it's in your mind. So Genesis 3. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15 of Genesis 3. The Lord said to the serpent, so we're in the context of God kind of meeting out the punishments for Adam and Eve's sin. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and between the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So in the midst of this curse on the serpent, we find that God purposes to deal decisively with the rebellion that is now in his creation. We see here that a descendant of the woman, though receiving a non-mortal wound, from the serpent, think about the, the strike on the heel, right? Not on the head, but on the heel, will deal a mortal blow, strike on the head, to the serpent. This will mark the end of the forces that oppose God's purposes and God's people, and it will open the way for God to consummate his plan for creation. So here, embedded in a curse on the serpent is a hope for humanity tied to a particular descendant of the woman. It's vague, but I think at the very least we can see that. There's hope for humanity tied to a particular descendant of the woman. Then in Genesis 5 and 11, we find two 10-member genealogies. In case those numbers are confusing. There's not two in 10, two in chapter 5 and two in chapter 10. There's one in chapter 5, a 10-member genealogy in chapter 5, and a 10-member genealogy in chapter 10 of Genesis. The first one, chapter 5, takes us 10 generations from Adam to Noah. Then the second one in chapter 10 of Genesis takes us from Noah to Abraham. And by so doing, the author's connecting Abraham directly back to this promise about a descendant from the woman. Now that moves on to number three, the promises to and through Abraham. Beginning with Abraham in Genesis 12, God begins giving more specific promises about how he will restore and complete his purposes in creation. And these promises are primarily found in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, 
in Genesis 17, but we get some other details at various other passages throughout Genesis. It's hard to overestimate the importance of these promises to Abraham. God's whole plan of redemption flows out of these promises. Whether you're talking about the Old Covenant, everything that happens in the Old Testament, whether you're talking about the New Covenant, whether you're talking about the new heavens and new earth we're looking forward to, all of these are flowing out of God's promises to Abraham. So it's hard to overestimate the importance of these promises to Abraham. What are these promises and how do they relate to God's purpose in creation? In a very simple summary, there are three essential promises. Number one, a multitude of descendants. Number two, land. And number three, blessing for all nations through Abraham and his seed. Number one, multitude of descendants. Number two, land. Number three, blessing for all nations through Abraham and his seed. And how do these relate to God's purpose in creation? I gave you a little table there in which you'll see as the rows going across are those three promises. Land, descendants, blessing. Sorry that I changed up the order there. And then the columns would be showing us first how those themes fit into God's purpose at creation. Then in the middle column, how that was threatened through the result of sin. And then the third column on the far right, how the promises to Abraham address those same themes. So let's start first by looking at the land one all the way across. God's creation purpose for land Adam was placed in a garden to work and keep it. So there's a certain land that he's given. That was threatened by the exile from the garden and the curse on the ground. But in Abraham, Abraham is promised a land, and later it's promised to be a fruitful land. So you can see how this whole theme of land comes up in creation. There's a certain place where man is put, God's vice regents, And they're responsible to extend the boundaries. And that's where God's presence dwells and where they enjoy God's presence. But they're going to extend the boundaries of that. So the blessings they experience in the garden are realized across the globe. That's all threatened when they're removed. What God does is says to Abraham, you're going to be the agent of my blessing now. And I'm going to put you in a particular land. And I would say there are a number of prophetic texts that suggest pretty clearly that even that is not to remain static in terms of its boundaries, but the very boundaries itself are to extend. Not least of all, when you consider passages like what Paul says in um, Romans 4, what is it, 11, 12, there will be heirs of the earth. Um, or when you consider um, even that, like uh, the new earth, right? The new Jerusalem seems to fill the whole earth. So there are a variety of themes. Your Psalm 2 is another passage that very, very clearly refers to David's rule or at least his, his ultimate descendant, um, ruling over the whole earth? <clears throat> yes. Correct. Yeah. An heir of the earth. And basically just that the, the land boundaries given to us and the land promised to Abraham, I don't think they were intended to be ultimately static, but to ultimately extend just like the garden was. Then moving down to descendants, In God's creation purposes, Adam was given the blessing commission of being fruitful and multiplying, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That was threatened through the fall in the difficulty in conception and childbirth, Genesis 3.16. And in Abraham, that's somewhat fixed or at least promised to be fixed in that Abraham is promised a multitude of descendants like the sand on the seashore or the stars in the heavens. And then moving down to our third row there, blessing Adam was to extend the blessings of the garden to the whole earth. That was threatened because of sin and that they were exiled from the garden, as well as all the consequences of Genesis 3. Those all threatened the blessings. And then finally with Abraham, Abraham has promised that all nations will be blessed through him and his seed. Okay, so that's how Abraham plays this critical role in fixing this. Now we're going to quickly move through several more books here. Although they're promised land, because of famine at the end of Genesis, they end up leaving the land. God blesses this. And so Jacob, now named Israel, takes his family, his children, down to Egypt during that time. And they end up staying there for centuries and become enslaved there. You guys are familiar with this, right? So on the one hand, that's a wonderful thing. 
when God kind of blessed him going in Genesis 46, he specifically said that go there and there, I will make you a great nation. You turn to Exodus chapter one, and what do you find? But them multiplying prolifically, such that there's terror from the Pharaoh of Egypt. And he's ready to get rid of them, right? He's got to do something. So he ends up enslaving them. So God's already fulfilling his promises in part. This whole idea of promises being fulfilled in part is a helpful category to have if we approach scripture simply looking at either there's nothing being fulfilled and then we snap our fingers and suddenly it's totally fulfilled. We're going to be really confused because lots of scriptures about showing God's progress toward fulfilling something even before it's finally and ultimately and completely fulfilled. So that, that promise for a multitude of descendants is beginning to be fulfilled, but they're now worse off than they were in Abraham's situation in terms of the land promise because they're completely outside of the land. They've totally vacated it. All of the descendants vacated it. So what's God needs, what does he need to do? Well, this is the theme of Exodus, right? He's going to bring them out back into the land. The primary driving motivation of the Exodus isn't liberation from slavery. It is primarily fulfillment of his promises about the land. So we find God doing that. He delivers them, brings them out. But before we get to the land, keep in mind, by the end of of Deuteronomy, we still aren't in the land. But middle of Exodus, we find ourselves at Mount Sinai, where the Lord gives another covenant, the Mosaic covenant. So how does the Mosaic covenant fit into the story of the Pentateuch? This covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is a distinct covenant from the Abrahamic covenant, but it's not an entirely separate covenant. In other words, it's not entirely unrelated to the promises to Abraham. Rather, it's thoroughly related to the promise to Abraham. It functions, you could say, if we could map this spatially, it functions under the Abrahamic covenant, giving more specificity to the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant for a season of salvation history, a season that will continue all the way up to the first coming of the Messiah. And for this reason... The Mosaic Covenant, we could say, stands behind all of the Old Testament, providing the framework or backdrop against which we understand everything we read. And in particular, for our class, it stands behind all of the former prophets, that period that's being covered. In fact, I I consider naming this class on the former prophets in the shadow of Sinai, because in many ways, that's, that's one significant motif. How is life working out for them under the Mosaic Covenant? So in summary, regarding the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant administrates the fulfillment of the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant, in particular explaining what is expected of Israel if she will receive those promises, if she will partake in the fulfillment of the promises. In other words, the Mosaic Covenant provides an arrangement for God to do his work of restoring and completing his purposes at creation, at least some parts of that work. I'm not sure the Mosaic Covenant provides provisions for fulfilling all elements of the Abrahamic Covenant, but at least some elements. Next, we find the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. God gives instructions for a tabernacle, a sanctuary, to be constructed for him to dwell in. And this is done, and the Lord takes up residence in the tabernacle in the midst of Israel. And you see, in this way, God is beginning to restore his relational presence among his people. Though it's, at this stage, limited just to Israel, right? It's not yet his relational presence among all humanity, but limited to a particular section of it. Not entirely unlike the way that his relational presence was initially limited to the garden, but not intending to remain limited. In numerous ways, the tabernacle is presented as a new garden, and thus it helps us in Israel to understand the tabernacle as an attempt to kind of reinstate the garden, a new garden of sorts, an attempt to reinstate God's creation purposes. Then next we come to Leviticus. So now you've got God dwelling with humans, but we've been here before, haven't we? What happened last time? Sin and sinning humans could not dwell in the presence of the Lord. So Leviticus comes about to address that. What can man do because of God's mercy to maintain God's relational presence despite being sinful? 
And really, Leviticus provides that. It provides things like atonement. Follow these steps and you can accomplish atonement so the Lord will continue to reside in your midst. Or, for example, through the tabernacle, the tabernacle doesn't provide total, free, unmediated access to God. It's actually a thoroughly mediated access, isn't it? Only some people go in, only sometimes. What was placed outside the garden at the end of Genesis chapter 3 to guard access to God's relational presence? And what's woven into the, um, the curtains of the tabernacle as you move further and further in? Cherubim. What stands over the ark with its wings spread out over it? Cherubim. Protecting access. It's against that backdrop that we need to read the end of Revelation where it says that in the new heavens and new earth, there was no temple. There, it was complete unmediated access to God. But for now, if God's going to dwell in the midst of sinful humans, it must be mediated in some way. So Leviticus is providing for that. Then we find ourselves, Numbers, I think it's Numbers 10, at Kadesh Barnea, at the southern edge of the promised land about to enter in. Now this is monumental, momentous, significant, when we understand this in the flow of salvation history. That in some ways, all of this is about restoring God's relational presence. And the, the whole Pentateuch so far has been looking forward to this time when God will do this in the land. And we come to a critical moment. Everything they're observing about entering the land tells them this is a bad idea. Let's not do this. But what does God say? Do it. I'll be with you. I'll take care of you. Are you hearing any sort of motifs from the garden? Are we going to yield in faith to God's decrees? Are we going to trust him in his revelation? Epistemic dependency. Or are we going to assert our own right to determine what's right and wrong? Are we going to lean on our own understanding? And what do they do? They choose to lean on their own understanding. And there it is. There can be no dwelling in the presence of the Lord when we continue to do that. And so, that whole generation is left to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Until another generation is raised up. And by the end of Numbers, we see another uh, genealogy that shows us that that whole generation is gone. Except, of course, the two faithful ones, Joshua and Caleb, as well as by that point, Moses, who ends up dying right at the end of Deuteronomy before going into the land. And so then, we come to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the last book of the Pentateuch, nearly all the disobedient generation has died. This new generation is ready, poised on the edge of the Jordan, on the plains, just to the east of the edge of the Jordan, ready to enter in and experience the restoration of God's creation purposes. And the book of Deuteronomy is essentially a collection of Moses' final sermons to that generation, charging them with how they must live in the land if this purpose of God to restore his creation purposes is going to go forward. In particular, he informs them that to the extent that they trust and obey the Lord, they will experience the blessings of the Lord's presence, such that life will become increasingly Edenic. And the results of the unbelief and disobedience will be rolled back. There will be agricultural abundance. There will be a diminishment of disease. There will be a multiplication of descendants. There will be peace, no threat from enemies. But to the extent they don't trust the Lord and obey him, the situation in the garden will be repeated. Famine, disease, dwindling population, Desolate cities filled with jackals and owls, deserted, threats and oppression from enemies, and ultimately eviction from the land, exile, just like happened in the garden. And in that way, God's relational presence will be removed even from there, that new garden, just as happened in the garden. Now, it's also important to realize that Deuteronomy doesn't present these two options of blessing and curse as equally viable possibilities in terms of the, the anticipation horizon. 
The text is explicitly, that is to say, Moses is explicitly pessimistic, expecting that Israel will rebel and will experience the curses of the covenant. Moses specifically attributes this, get this, Moses specifically attributes this pessimism to the Mosaic Covenant's inability to provide the fundamental heart-level change that is needed to trust and obey the Lord. But beyond the pessimism, he doesn't stop there. Beyond the pessimism, there is hope in Moses' words. Hope that after Israel experiences all the curses of the covenant, including exile, God will do that required work of giving new hearts so Israel will be able to trust and obey the Lord and thereby experience the restoration of God's creation purposes. But that positive outlook, that hopeful outlook, lies beyond the scope of the former prophets. The history narrated in the former prophets falls within the era about which Moses is pessimistic. It's important to keep in mind. That's the background to us entering the era of the former prophets. Um, just that I wrote here, the, the positive era lies beyond the scope of the former prophets, the history narrated in the former prophets falls within the era about which Moses is pessimistic. Yep. So how do we summarize the situation at the end of the Pentateuch? Israel is ready to enter the promised land. They are eager to obey. They are eager to obey and participate in the restoration of God's creation purpose, with obedience to the Mosaic Covenant being the key to realizing this hope. But, as we stand with Israel, looking across the Jordan, we can't ignore a, a minor note, a minor note that's reverberating in the atmosphere, and that is the note of Moses' pessimism. Hope, looking across, ready to enter, and yet we're remembering what Moses said. This pessimism, that they won't be able to do it. So that's a quick summary of the Pentateuch. Is that clock back there, right? Ah, what happened? It's 610. What was that? It is. <laughs> uh, okay, well, let's stop there. I don't want to uh, ask too much of you. And we'll start out next time by considering what to look for when reading biblical narrative. We made it through most of our notes. <clears throat> All right. Any questions as we close? How are we doing? Are we keeping up? Or is this too fast? Do we need to downshift a little bit? Yeah. So Exodus 32 and 34, right between, 32 through 34, right between the giving of the instructions for the tabernacle. So the instructions for the tabernacle are given in Exodus 26 through 31. And then Exodus 35 to 40 narrates the construction of the tabernacle. Right in between, you find this golden calf incident, right? Interestingly situated between the instructions for God dwelling with them and, and God actually dwelling with them. And they basically just are immediately, just after the covenant's been made, they're already breaking it, right? They're already committing idolatry breaking at least one of the Ten Commandments. And yet, basically it seems to indicate that there's no hope for them to be able to do this. If the covenant has any hope, it depends entirely upon the mercy of the Lord. That he is going to kind of be merciful and restore the covenant and forgive their iniquities because, as was it, chapter 34, verses 4 through 6 indicates, that God is abounding in loving kindness and willing to forgive. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think that's a pretty critical critical portion. All right, anything else? Any other questions or comments? All right. Let me close some prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of having your word, being able to read it, being able to understand it. And we pray, Lord, that as we continue to live in 
this narrative and the, the narrative of, of Scripture, the meta-narrative, that we would increasingly just learn to inhabit it, that it would become the context that gives meaning to life, that, that gives the context for how we make sense of who we are, where we are, what we hope for. I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, even as we've got so much material to cover, uh, grant these dear brothers and sisters just an attentiveness and a patience with the speed at which we move and grant me a grace to summarize things well and be clear. Now, I, mean, I pray, Lord, that our time together over the next six weeks would be just a tremendously profitable one in your hands as your spirit uses it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.